Acts 19.32. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. <laughs> that kind of reminds me of what I saw in the news this last week when I was watching some of these protests and different things. And, uh, you know, it kind of makes sense. People were told to stay home for a couple of years, sheltering at home. They lose their job, you know, they don't have a TV, they don't have food. And so someone says, hey, let's go protest, it's okay. To go out, there's actually, they actually said in the news last week in California here, two things are okay, going to church and protesting. How many think that we're a Protestant church, so it's pretty good to come to church here? We should be protesting all the time, so. But sometimes, you know, people are wondering, what should I do? There's all kinds of confusion, and people are stressed out. Maybe they lost their job. Maybe they, uh, you know, have or know someone who has COVID-19. Um, you know, someone was talking to me this last week and said, you know, people are not taking this serious enough. And I think that's probably true. Uh, there can be people that don't take it seriously. Usually the people that take COVID-19 serious are those who have worked with people who have died or people that have relatives who have died and they take it fairly seriously. And uh, um, usually people that are upset about racial problems are those that are the recipients of racism. But nobody else understands, and many other people minimize it. So how many of you want to think about the people that maybe are having problems? Not just about yourself, right? So um, I got a graphic from somebody this last week that says, Pity the poor pastor when they come back to church because some people think the church should never have closed and why was the pastor such an idiot to close the church? Some people think the church should still not be open. Why is he opening it up? He's such an idiot to open the church up. Some people, and it had like 10 options. And I was like, yeah, that's good. That's really good. <laughs> yeah, I don't feel bad though. I'm glad you're all here today. So let's pray together and then we'll get into our message Father in heaven, Lord, thank you today that we can again come together and study your word. And we ask your blessing on it. You've already blessed it. You protected your word through millennia. People have tried to get rid of it. And yet it still is here. Only two things that last forever, your word and people who accept your word. And we want to be those people who accept your word today. So bless us as we study in Christ's name. Amen. So. Samaritan Lives Matter, <laughs> part two. Last week, we looked at the story of the Samaritan, the uh, man, the Samaritan man who had helped that person who had been injured on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And we begin to realize how dramatic and radical that story really was. It's like sitting on the front row, that's radical. So we... <laughs> Um, because Samaritans in that time were hated and they were discriminated against. And Jesus, rather than using a rabbinical story that elevated the piety and, and goodness of rabbis, actually told a story where the hero was a Samaritan. This would have been totally radical in that day, as we mentioned, because there had been just recently attacks on Jews. There had been actually a mob that went down and looted a Samaritan city and, and protested and everything. And that story came out right then. You know, there's a couple editors that got fired from various newspapers last week or resigned, I think it was, because they had published things they should not have published, the paper thought. And I'm sure there were people that said to Jesus, it's not good to publish that or Luke. That's a very bad thing to publish. And yet he did publish it. Because <laughs> Christ was a person that addressed the issues and problems in society directly. And uh, he did it in a way that would make sense. Startle us, O God, with your truth. Open our hearts and minds to your wondrous love. Speak your words to us. Silence any voice but your own. That's really what we need, to be startled. And Jesus' whole ministry was startling. Um, 
I think people genuinely today are wondering what to do. Should we go out and protest? Should we defund the police? Should we send in the military? Should we vote out officials we don't like? Should we vote in others? And the question really is, what would Jesus do? Would he gather a group for public protest? I don't see it anywhere, although he could have. One time he was asked to actually do a public protest in John 5, and they wanted to make him king because they saw that he could feed the 5,000 and he could also raise the dead. What could, what could go wrong? You could do anything you wanted and, and get through it. But what he did was he, he just actually said, get in the boat and let's go to the other side of the lake. Do you remember that story? He actually ran away from the protests, interestingly enough. But that doesn't mean he didn't do anything. Like we said, he shared that exemplary story, example story of an unusual hero, the Samaritan. But I want to look today at another Samaritan story in John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Go with me there, and we're going to see Samaritan story number 2. By the way, there's, I think, eight of them in the New Testament. I could do a whole series on Samaritan Lives Matter. (laughs) Um, But I'm just, I don't know that I will, but I could. So, Samaritan Lives Matter. Let's look, first of all, John chapter 4. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea. And departed again to Galilee. So here he is. He's baptizing all these people, or people are being baptized because he normally didn't baptize anybody, other people baptized for him. And he realizes the scribes and the Pharisees are going to get upset. They're actually kind of prejudiced against Jesus. (laughs) And so he goes, I better get out of town. He says, I'm going to go to Galilee. Now, going to Galilee from down south where he was in Jerusalem, if you wanted to go to Galilee, the quickest way from Judea was directly through Samaria. And the Samaritans were hated. So if you were a pious Jew, you never would go through Samaria. Instead, you'd go east, across the Jordan River, adding extra hours and days to your travel. But you, because you hated the Samaritans so much, would go across the river, enter the region of Perea, and then go north. You would go up. Here's Judea. Here's Galilee. Here's Samaria. But you're not going there. You're going across the river and up and around so you don't have to go through Samaria. Because you don't want to see a Samaritan. You certainly don't want to touch a Samaritan. You want to socially distance to the extreme level. Right? That's what you want to do. So, by design, and because of racial prejudice, they would not go through Samaria. Why were they so prejudiced? Because the Samaritans, they... they, uh, They really thought they had messed up way back about 400 years before. And how had they messed up? How had they messed up? Well, the Samaritans were actually Jews that had stayed in the the nation or the area of the temple in Jerusalem and not been taken captive to Babylon. So they were there and they had stayed there, but everybody else was taken captive. And when they came back, they discovered that these Jews had intermarried with some of the Gentiles, and that's when they started calling them Samaritans. And they said, you, 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 you did what? You intermarried with these folks, and you actually entered into their religion. And by the way, when we were gone, there was no priest to teach them. And so they developed their own theology. They actually said, we don't know if we can trust anything but the Pentateuch, because that's the first five books of the Bible, and we're just going to go by that. And they had developed their own kind of blend, and it wasn't, was not all correct. I mean, the Samaritan Lives Matter movement had some serious flaws, theologically speaking. 
That's going to come out later. And then they decided to build their own temple. They were not allowed to help rebuild the temple because they said, you guys are corrupt. And so they built their own temple at Mount Gerizim. They developed their own language. And the Jews just hated them. Now, it's interesting. They called them half-breeds. Now, recently, they've done a genetic study of the Samaritans. They've done many genetic studies of the Samaritans because they only married each other for many, many years. And they do have problems because of that, too. But that's another sermon. But anyway, they were, they, they, they've done genetic studies. Now, how many of you think it's kind of over the top to do uh, contact tracing and take pictures of you? But at least we're not asking for a genetic sample today. Maybe, Tom, we could ask for DNA samples next week. But they did these DNA samples on Samaritans. Would you like to hear the report? Yes. A couple of you say yes. I assume the rest of you say yes. The mitochondrial DNA results show that maternal history, in other words, your mother's mother's mother, revealed no major difference between Samaritans, Jews, or Palestinians in all that were sampled. These three groups have relatively similar maternal genetic histories. Oh, in other words, you're half-breeds, you're not this or that. But now they looked at the evidence and guess what? Same genetics. Next one, how about the story of the Y chromosomes? (laughs) Which shows paternal history. And by the way, the Jews trace their history maternally, right? So, but what about paternal history, i.e. your father's 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 daddy's daddy's daddy? It's quite different. Indeed, not only are the Y chromosomes of Jews and Samaritans, not only are the Y chromosomes of the Jews and Samaritans more similar to each other than that of the Palestinians, the Y chromosomes of the Samaritans show striking similarities to very specific Y chromosomes, most associated with Jewish men. Aha! So they weren't sleeping around as much. Jewish men, although the Samaritan type is slightly different from the Jewish type, it's clear that the two, get this, the two share a common ancestor. This would be a very unsavory report in Jesus' day. What? We have a common ancestor! Probably within the last few thousand years, according to the authors, the Y chromosome clearly shows that the Samaritans and the Jews share common ancestry dating to at least 2,500 years ago. So even though they said, we hate them, we're all different than them, if they had done the genetic test back then, they would have seen, (laughs) sorry, Charlie, you're actually very close. So let's see what happens. The next part, verse there in chapter 4, verse 4, now comes into great relief. Remember, it says that he left because he thought that we were going to get upset because he baptized and whatnot, and he's going to Galilee. And then it says, verse 4, but he needed to go through Samaria. He didn't need to go through there. They had a route all planned out for him. And that text indicates that he was going to do something about the Samaritan racial prejudice. He needed, needed to go through Samaria. Well, Let's continue on. Verse 5. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave his son Joseph. And now Jacob's well was still there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat by the well. It was about the sixth hour. If you need to know who the common ancestor is, we already had the genetic study. Who is it? Jacob. Joseph. 
And he goes right there. That's a very famous well. It's still there today. Still, it produces water. You still can draw water from that well when you go on the trip to Israel with us next time. I'll take you there. And you can see that. And he goes right there to the center of Samaria, almost the capital, if you might. And he goes right in the middle of this nation that supposedly is a bunch of losers. And he goes right to the center, right next to the well. And it says when he got there that he was wearied from his journey. And he sat thus by the well. And it was about the sixth hour, so the middle of the day. You know why I love that text? Not only is he going to address racial issues, but he's going to do it not as some kind of conquering king. He's not coming with a military retinue around him. He's not coming with a whole bunch of ammo. He's coming as a suffering, wearied servant of humanity. He's tired and he's hungry. How many think that's just a beautiful picture? So Jesus enters into this place and he enters in as a seeking, suffering servant. He's entered, folks, into our suffering. He's entered into our weakness. He's entered into our pain. He's actually, it says in Hebrews chapter 2, entered into our genetics. He came with the same seed as Abraham. He's touched with our infirmities. And he enters in to the racial hotspot of his day. He gets there and what happens? It's the middle of the day. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Verse 7, Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now, just stop right there. We read that like, oh yeah, so give, give me a drink. No, my friends. He is first of all in Samaria. Should not be in Samaria. He should not be in Samaria. Doesn't he know? That's the wrong side of the tracks. That's the place where all these half-breeds are. And yet he goes right there into the midst of that city. Secondly, he's talking to a woman. Rabbis do not talk to women. They don't do that. They only talk to their wife. No one else. The laws of the day said you don't even talk to another woman. And now he's talking to a woman. That's not his wife who evidently is also a problem woman because she's coming in the middle of the day. The women usually came at the evening and she's in the middle of the day. Which means there's a reason she comes in the middle of the day, which we're going to find out later in the story, is because she's had a number of relationships with men and I'm sure the other women are a little afraid of her And she doesn't want to get in a conflict with them, so she's going in the middle of the day when she thinks no one will be there. So when you just read that, you just read it now with your, you know, your 20th century eyes, year 2020, and you go, oh, that's no big deal. It's a huge deal. A woman, a Samaritan. And then he says to her, would you give me a drink? What? What? That would be a huge no-no. Give me a drink. Give me a break. What's he doing? Doesn't he know that Samaritans and Jews don't eat or drink together? Doesn't he know that? Doesn't he realize that there's a place for Samaritans on the bus and there's a place for Jews on the bus and the Samaritans don't go to the place on the bus that's for Jews? Doesn't he realize there's different diners and cafes for the Samaritans than the Jews? Doesn't he realize that he would be defiled by even touching what they touch? How many can see how radical the story is? It's not a story. It happened. (laughs) She knows it. Samaritan came to draw water, verse 7. He said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. What? 
He wasn't even being chaperoned. He wasn't even being monitored. There was nobody that could say that he did this and she did that. He didn't have any witnesses. What was he thinking? His whole ministry was on the line. There was no one taking pictures for contact distancing. and There was no... He wasn't wearing a mask. He wasn't wearing gloves. What is wrong with this guy? The woman of Samaria even knows this. Verse 9. The woman of Samaria said to him, "Ah, Excuse me. Maybe she's whispering even though there's no one there. How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink? A Samaritan woman. So he says, look, just in case you didn't see it, you are a Jew. I am a Samaritan. You are a man. I am a woe man. You are asking me for a drink. Why is she saying that? Because she knows of all of the trigger points in that prejudiced society. Knows it like the back of her hand. And did you know something? Here, belo- here begins the longest recorded conversation that anyone ever had with Jesus. He talked longer to this woman than any of recorded conversations with his disciples. That alone is stunning. How many think that's stunning? Longest conversation with a Samaritan, a woman. And the woman is totally startled and caught off guard. The book Desire of Ages says, To offer a drink to a thirsty traveler was held to be a duty so sacred that the Arabs of the desert would go out of their way in order to perform it. The hatred between Jews and Samaritans prevented the woman from offering a kindness to Jesus. But the Savior was seeking to find a key to her heart. And with a tact born of divine love, he asked, but did not offer a favor. The best thing he could have ever done to break down prejudice and to open the heart was to ask her to give him a drink. How many think that we can learn something from this story? How many of you learned anything yet? Going out of your way having an individual dialogue, having an individual encounter where you're, it's so startling, but it's demonstrating something totally different in seeking and saving the lost. Yes? Recruiting people for the cities of refuge. <laughs> you might say. Jesus answered, verse 10, and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Wait, stop, stop, wait a minute. Uh, You just asked me for a drink. That's radical, but what you're saying is, I should have asked you? I mean, that's taboo. To me, to talk to you would have been really radical, and you're saying you should have, I should have asked you for a drink, and that your water is living water? And then she says something. Verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and livestock? He's startled. There's a surprising solution that he's giving to her. Living water, something that will totally cut off the need of ever coming to the well again, which she would welcome for many reasons. But that phrase, that phrase, do you see the phrase? Sir, you have nothing to draw with. You have nothing to draw with. How many of you think that's a radical statement? How many of you would just, you go, that's it, that's radical. Let me explain it to you and you'll see how radical it is. Jews in those days never, ever allowed somebody else to give them Water. They had their own drawing utensil. They always carried with them a bucket so they could draw their own water. 
because maybe they would be defiled. What if they drank water that had been from a Samaritan jug? What if they had water from a Gentile? And so they never traveled without their own hand sanitizer, their own rubber gloves, their own mask, and their own jug, ever. And she reminds him of that. Sir, how will you draw the water seeing you have no, nothing to draw with? But he still says, draw the water, which means he says, go ahead. I'm drinking from the same jug that you're drinking from. I know it says Samaritans only at this drinking fountain. But I'm drinking at that drinking fountain. (laughs) How many see how radical the story is? How many can see how radical the story is? Jesus answered, verse 13, and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never thirst, but the water I shall give him will be in him a fountain of water springing up to everlasting life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. She instantly says, I see the value in this. I don't have to come back here, face all these women, face all that. Yes, give me some of that. It springs up from within inside. Oh, that's good. It's kind of like a geyser. It, it comes from within. <laughs> good. I don't care how it works. Just give it to me. A superficial acceptance of something that is not just maybe even a physical reality, but a metaphorical reality pointing to the Holy Spirit and the life that will spring up and give life forever. But she goes for a superficial understanding and says, give me this, that I don't have to come back here. Jesus is speaking of the true remedy, the water of life which springs up to everlasting life. She's interested. But only on a superficial plane. She doesn't like the rejection. She doesn't like the pain. She wants to get away from the pain, numb the pain. She's social isolated already, but now she doesn't even have to come. (laughs) She wants to shelter at home and never come back again. And that is not the purpose of the gospel, to stay at home your whole life. He realizes she doesn't get it. She realizes that she needs to be startled. She needs to understand that he understands at a much deeper level. So what does he say? (laughs) Don't try this until after you've offered someone something they never had before. What's he say? He doesn't start with this, but in the middle, what's he say? Verse 16. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. (laughs) And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband, that's number six, in that you have spoke truly. Ouch! How many can say ouch? Why does Jesus do this? Because she only has a superficial understanding of what's going on. And sometimes when we're dealing with issues of race and of prejudice and of conversion and of the gospel, we only have a very superficial understanding. And we just go through the motions, talk about good vibrations. We, we go through the motions, and we're really not even listening. We go for what we can get out of church. Oh yeah, I'd like some drink. I'd like the fellowship meal. It's kind of sloppy agape, just a little, you know. 
And he realizes, this is serious. This person is going to miss the gospel unless I get their attention. And so he does reveal a little bit of his insights. You got six guys in your life. Now, make no mistake, the guys had problems too. All those guys had problems. Maybe they had divorced her because in that day the men divorced the women, not the other way around. And who knows what had happened? And who knows the pain and the ache? I don't know the whole story. But he knew and he touched on the pain, the relational pain of her life and said, what I'm doing here is connected to hope and healing in the midst of your racial pain or rather your relational pain. And the racial disparities, that's one thing, but the racial, the relational pain. I know all about your life and I want to bring healing. Now, I would, I would just recommend that you don't talk about like that to people unless you've done what Jesus did first. He knew or she knew that he must be an unusual person. He's in Samaria. He's a Jew. He's at the well at the middle of the day. He's offered her, he's asked her to give him a drink. He's willing to drink out of her water pot. And this is all done what? Won her confidence. He ultimately has signed the consent form or had her consign it to do radical surgery. And because of that, he begins the surgery. Now, does she like it? What does she do next? Verse 20. Oh, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Instantly does what? Oh, yeah, you mentioned my husband's. Let's not talk about that. Let's talk about the talking points I got from Fox News, or the talking points I got from CNN or the talking points I got from whatever my media outlet is. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where you ought to worship. In other words, let's fight rather than heal. Let's deal with racism rather than relational pain, which is at the root of it. How many of you have ever done that? When the something comes down and you know you're supposed to deal with it, but you realize, oh, I don't want to do that. She shifts the conversation to the rationale of dissension. So Jesus says, okay, you want to talk about the platform of Samaritan Lives Matter? We'll talk about it. I look to your website. I understand what it really is about. By now you know that I think a Samaritan life matters to me. You know that. And you know that I know you know that I care about all Samaritans because I'm in your capital and I'm in your city and I didn't go around it. You know that already. There's no reason for me to have to explain to you that I care about Samaritans. But let's go ahead to your website because you're referring to the talking points that have kept us apart. Let's go ahead and visit it. And he says this. Woman, believe me, verse 21, the hour is coming when you will neither... On this mountain or Jerusalem, worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And that's Radically different than the Samaritan Lives website. I do, I, I, it's radically different. Now I'm going to say something that if I get on the internet, probably I'll be accused of being a bigot or something. But I'm just preaching about the Samaritans. Let me say this. I don't necessarily think Jesus would have put up a Samaritan Lives Matter poster because he was so much deeper than that. He was not attempting to solve things through the platform of the Samaritan Lives Matter website. 
He was trying to solve them at a deeper level. No one could ever accuse him of not caring for Samaritans. Ever. But he didn't agree with the philosophy. He said, salvation is of the Jews. What? In other words, there's 350 prophecies that point towards the Messiah. He didn't tell her that that was him yet. She's going to figure it out. And the very thing I'm doing is the very solution to the pollution, not what's on your website. You see, in that day, and in our day as well, there were people that tried to bait Jesus into going to the protests to get the government to change, as if the government has the answer to a spiritual problem. They have no answers to spiritual problems. No answers whatsoever. The real answers are always spiritual, related to living water. Relating to the Holy Spirit. How many of you are following me? Some of you look at me like, wait a minute. Let me read you this. Because <laughs> I've been thinking about this. I had actually some people call me up last week. Hey, Pastor Don, will you go to us to this protest? I said, I am a Protestant. So I think I'm already protesting. They said, if you don't declare yourself at this protest, it won't be good. So I had to process this. What does it say about protests? How should I relate to that? Listen to this from Fundamentals of Education. And this is talking about how an early Adventist pioneer was involved in the temperance movement other times prohibition, but this is talking about her philosophy of being involved in such things, and this is what she says. There is a large vineyard to be cultivated, but while Christians are to work among unbelievers, they are not to appear like worldlings. They are not to spend their time talking politics or acting as politicians. For by so doing, they give the enemy opportunity to come in and cause variance and discord. There, those in ministry who desire to stand as politicians should have their credentials taken from them. For this work God has not given to high or low among his people. God calls upon all who minister in doctrine to give the trumpet a certain sound. All who have received Christ, ministers and lay members, are to arise and shine. For great peril is right on us. So it's not that they're not involved. They're arising, they're shining, they're involved. Was Jesus arising and shining in Samaria? But he didn't have a busload of people that went with him. (laughs) Satan is stirring the powers of the earth. Everything in the world is in confusion. Do you remember our scripture reading? They came. They didn't know why they were there. Maybe I'll pick up a TV. What exactly are we doing? Oh, you've got this for me to talk about? I'll do that. State and asserting the powers of the earth. Everything in the world is in confusion. God calls upon his people to hold aloft the banner bearing the message of the third angel. What's the message of the third angel? Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments and have the faith of Jesus. It's holding Jesus up, the faith of Jesus, and faith in Jesus to do things Jesus' way. How did Jesus deal with these things? We're reading about it. We're not to go to Christ through any human being But through Christ, we are to understand the work he has given us to do for others. God calls to his people saying, come out from them and be separate. He asks that the love which he has shown for them be reciprocated and revealed by willing obedience to his commandments. 
his children are to separate themselves from politics, from any alliance with unbelievers. You mean I can't sign up for Samaritan Lives Matters? No, because they have the wrong idea about go about it. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Charlie. But do Samaritan Lives Matter? Oh, yes. But salvation is of the Jews, <laughs> not in their platform. How many of you are following me? His children are to separate themselves from politics, from any alliance with unbelievers. They are not to link their interests with the interests of the world. Give proof of your allegiance to me, he says, by standing as my chosen heritage, as people zealous for good works. Is he doing good works? Is he helping Samaritans? Is he zealous for that? Do not take part in political strife. Separate from the world and refrain from bringing into the church or school ideas that will lead to contention and disorder. Dissension is the moral poison taken into the system by human beings who are selfish. You want to talk about something systemic? It's dancing with politics and political solutions for spiritual issues. It's saying, I don't trust God and his plan enough. I need to go down and get the Romans to help me. You do not need the Romans' help. You need Jesus' help. God wants his servants to have clear perceptions, true and noble dignity, that their influence may demonstrate the power of picketing. No, the power of truth. The Christian life is not to be a haphazard emotional life. True Christian influence. Now get this, this is the reason I read the whole thing to you. This is early Adventist pioneer who's addressed slavery and addressed all kinds of issues and is talking in the context of how enmeshed should you be with the government in these issues and this is how it ends true Christian influence I kind of like this or I wouldn't be reading it how many want to have Christian influence how many want to just have influence how about Christian influence how about true Christian influence which means there must be false Christian influence but True Christian influence exerted for the accomplishment of the work God has appointed is a precious agency. Uh, How do you know if you have that? And it must not be united with politics or bound up in a confederacy with unbelievers. God is to be the center of attraction Every mind that is worked by the Holy Spirit will be satisfied in him. How many of you want to be a radical protester? Then follow Jesus' example in John 4. Follow the example of the Samaritan in Luke 10. How many can see that it's radically different than what people are being baited into? How many can see that? Totally different. And my concern today is that people that are falling for this would fall for anything at the end of time. Now, let me just say this. I think it's kind of interesting. Another quote from the book, Desire of Ages. The government under which Jesus lived was corrupt and oppressive. How many think our government might be corrupt and oppressive? Think there's any parallels? By the way, I love America. People from every single nation come to America. There's nobody saying, look, I want to go somewhere else. They like to come to America. Right? America's made great strides. I think also even in the, in the race issue that it has more work to do. But, you know, we had a president who was elected by an overwhelming majority two times who was black. That's a little different than the 60s. But even though I'm kind of impressed with that, I know there's more work to do. I'm also thankful to be a part of church that has a track record of 
doing many things to fight against racism. Still has problems, but even 20 years before we elected a president of the United States who was black in this country, I was at a general conference where they elected George Brown, a black man, to be the president of the general conference, and he turned it down. But he was selected by the nominating committee by an overwhelming majority, which means the Adventist church has actually asked people to be the top leader of the church. Is there more work to do? Yes, but God's working. Now let me read this quote. The government under which Jesus lives was corrupt, oppressive, on every hand crying abuses, extortion, intolerance, and grinding cruelty. Yet the Savior attempted no civil reforms. He attacked no national abuses, nor condemned the national enemies. He did not interfere with the authority and administration of those in power. He who was our example kept aloof from earthly governments, not because he was indifferent to the woes of men, but because, listen to this, the remedy did not lie in merely human and external measures. To be efficient, the cure must reach man individually, individually, in Luke 10, John 4, individually, and must regenerate the heart with what? Living water. Now notice that the language there. He attacked no national abuses. I, I, I pronounced it very loudly. How many of you heard me do that? National. National. Why did I do that? Because he did address issues inside his faith community. And as a matter of fact, he was discipling a bunch of disciples who were watching him and seeing how it was that he was going to deal with racial disparities. How many think there are things in the church that might need to change? How many think there are things in your heart that may need to change? But never go outside and think, okay, I'll get the government to do what only conversion can do. Don't try and get an external law which by something can only be changed internally. Okay, let's go back to our story and let's finish up here. Where were we? What, what, what verse? So the point is, he does not go along with the complete Samaritanized package. He knows, she knows he cares for her. But he elevates the discussion above the talking points of the media. And he goes for the reality that she needs salvation and salvation is of the Jews. I hate that when I hit the wrong button and erase my sermon. How many of you hate that when that happens? How many of you hate when your sermon's in the trash? <laughs> okay, here it is. I found it in the trash. <laughs> The wonders of digital notes. (laughs) You know, I got to scroll down here. If I hit this again, it's gone forever. Um, The woman said to him, verse 25, I know, look at this, look at this. Because he does it this way, because he follows those steps that we see in the story, She brings something up that's amazing. (laughs) The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. Where does that come from? It's because of his radical way of dealing with this. And suddenly your mind goes, I know the Messiah is coming, here's the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us All things. What did he just do to her? I know Barney, I know Billy, I know Henry, I know Eddie, and I know Donnie, all your former husbands, and I know Frank, to be frank with you, who's living with you now. (laughs) 
And she goes, if someone can tell me all things about my deepest pain and yet shows compassion and love for me in the midst of my deepest pain, in the midst of my, my prejudice that I have, in the midst of all the unrest, not only in culture, but in my life, not just racial problems, but relational problems, and he can speak the truth about that. That's got, could this be <laughs> the Messiah? And by the way, he was willing to even say, he knows, he, went, he, he read the website. <laughs> and though he disagrees with it, he's for me. How many of you are with me? How many think we need to be reading a little deeper? How many think that might be? He had dealt with the racial prejudice and completely obliterated with this woman. And now he can say what she's noticed. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, I am the Messiah. And she knew it was true because he had dealt with one of the single worst problems in the culture of the day. In a way that was so loving, so gentle, and yet so direct. How many think we could probably learn something from Jesus? Answer the disciples, verse 27. At that point, his disciples came and they marveled how he talked to a woman. Yet no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking to her? But that's what they were thinking. And the woman then left her water pot, went her way to the city, and said to the men, Come! And went and said to the who? In the context, who are those men? Frankie, Billy, Eddie, all the six husbands. Guys, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did with you and with you and with you and you with me. Could this be the Christ? And then they went out of the city and came to him. And in the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. And he said to them, I have food to eat, which you don't know about. And therefore the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? So the disciples come in, and what are they doing? They're saying, wait a minute, what just happened? We left you just for a minute, and you're talking to a woman, a Samaritan. You're doing all this stuff, and you're drinking stuff with her and everything else. Whoa, don't you realize you're not supposed to do that? Click, 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 just like the woman. They were just as racially biased as she was at the beginning. And then the woman herself says, he's the Messiah. And starts to evangelize the disciples. The woman of Samaria is evangelizing the disciples of Christ. I mean, there's something beautiful about this. And then they say, look, has anyone brought you any food? Why don't you eat with us and drink with us? Don't you know it's dirty? Don't you know it's not? Get on the right side of the bus, buddy. Over here. No, no, those drinking fountains. No, 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 no. Here's some drink. Here's some water. Don't do that. And what's he said? You know, when I'm around you guys, I'm not even hungry for some reason. You make me sick. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't have, I don't need food. I have to talk to you guys. He doesn't say that directly because I've got food you don't know about. It's Samaritan food. <laughs> you know. What are you doing? What are you talking to her? Don't eat with her. Don't drink with her. Drink with us. And he said, verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do not say there are four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they're already white for harvest. In other words, look at all these Samaritans, an entire country that you're always passing by. (laughs) And we almost got killed by the Pharisees because we baptized too many people down there. And there's this whole country that we've always been going around. No, we're not going around anymore. We're right in the middle. And our protest is going to be held a one-on-one audience with the most influential people. And the most influential person 
is a woman who has problems with men who actually understands her need and if she's converted she's going to convert first off six men and then all kinds of people because she's the most powerful you know when I go to a new city you know where I want to go not the church normally I love the church but I want to go to AA (laughs) I want to go to places where people know they have problems yeah because if they know they have problems then they're open to solutions and the gospel can change their life and that's much more powerful for me than me attending a protest because I know they'll protest but they'll protest from a gospel perspective prejudice taken away verse 39 many Samaritans of that city Believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me everything I ever did. (laughs) They already were talking about everything she did. They knew what she did. And they say, this guy who never saw you before knew all that. This has got to be the Messiah. And by the way, the way he treated you, you're telling me he drank out of your water bottle? or unless you draw water, you're telling me he came in the middle, you, everything you're telling me goes along with what you're saying. This is the Messiah. How many of you think that in this time of racial tension and confusion that God has something for us to do? And people are trying to tell us what to do and how many think John 4 might be telling us what to do? And how many think Luke 10 might be telling us what to do? How many think that might happen? All kinds of people trying to tell me what to do. They're sending me emails, social media, you should do this, you should do that. Well, what does Jesus say? What did Jesus do? Notice verse 40, and we're going to close up here. I don't know what time it is, but oh, I should. Ten after. Verse 40. So when the Samaritans had come to him, They urged him to stay with them, and he stayed for two days. (laughs) What? (laughs) Most of the Jews tried to get in and out as quickly as possible if they ever had to go to Samaria, and now he stays there. (laughs) What is he thinking? His disciples are like, what? No, no, no. Let's go to Motel 7, not Motel 666, where we've been staying. Let's go. Let's get out of here. He goes, no, 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 no. We're going to stay for two more days. Because racial prejudice had been broken down. And people were open to the gospel. Stay until the Holy Spirit comes. Be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Once racial prejudice had been broken down through sacrificial service, the whole country was open. And indeed, the whole world would be open. I was talking to Deutschen, Dr. Z. <laughs> we take these tours every year. And when we're, we, we would have been this week in Friedenzau. Oh, wait, last weekend, Friedenzau, Germany. And normally we're there. He's given a lecture on Sabbath morning about the Moravians. I called him up. I said, look, send me the Moravian lecture. So he sent it to me about 10 minutes before I get up here. And it came to my mind, that lecture, because he had this radical story that he told about the Moravians. 
Moravians believed their community was obtained, had obtained the gift of languages to equip them for missionary service. Somehow they had been given languages like in Acts 2. So in 1732, the community began to send out missionaries among the slaves in the West Indies and the indigenous people of Greenland. So they said, we're going to go to the Europeans. We're going to know the people who look like us. They went to the slaves. Then it got more radical. The missionary work in the West Indies had been controversial in Europe, with some accusing Zinzendorf of sending missionaries off to die. So Zinzendorf, the leader of the Moravians, decided to place himself on the line. And in 1739, he left Europe to visit the mission on the St. Thomas Island. And the visit was a huge success. Several hundred slaves were converted to Christianity. Moravian missionaries also created mission communities to the black slaves then in America, in South Carolina, and then in South America. Moravians knew from the complete absence of, were known for the complete absence of racism, living, eating, worshiping, and being buried in common graves with African slaves. In fact, they began selling themselves into slavery to reach the slaves for Christ. Where did they get that idea? Where did they get that idea? From the Democrats? From the Republicans? No. They got the idea from Jesus. I want to start getting my ideas from Jesus. How many want to start getting your ideas from Jesus? That's all I have to say, basically. But I think it's enough. Let's sing that song of that slave trader turned missionary, Amazing Grace. Number 108 in your hymn book, but you probably know it from here. After we sing, I'm going to pray, and I'd like you to stay seated because we have some masked men that are going to rob you. No, we have some, <laughs> we have some masked deacons who are going to... Um, usher you out. And I would ask that you do leave so you can get some fresh air. We'd hate for you to uh, trace your, your demise to this worship service. <laughs> so let's sing Amazing Grace. <clears throat> and just listen as we sing about how this life was changed. Amazing Grace How sweet Saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am Was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to Grace my fears relieve How precious did that grace appear The hour I first believed The Lord has
John Newton was very old. Someone asked him to preach. I don't know how old he lived, but he was nearing death. And they said, oh, are you too old to preach? He said, absolutely not. This blasphemous slave trader still has something to say about God's grace. And I'll say it till the day I die. He admitted that he had been a racist <laughs> till the day he died. But he also gave glory to God who had radically changed his life through amazing grace. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you today for this radical expose of the divine heart. Not just the divine heart, but of the divine and human heart. Lord, change our hearts and give us women at the well, beat up men on the road, that we can minister to just as you did. That all might, all might know as the Samaritans did in Jesus' day of your love that they need to change their hearts and lives and that we need to change our own. In Jesus' name we pray. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.